can do better than that. Good morning, church. There you go. First service did much better than you guys, so come on. What's up? As you can see, Pastor Jordan is not here today. Uh, Baby Schultz made his debut yesterday, and so he texted me early morning. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That was weak. Can you try that again? There you go. So he texted me yesterday and was like, you're up. I hope you're ready. So, um, so I'm here filling in for Jordan while he is obviously with his family. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jason Vanna. I lead a ministry called Ignite, where we exist to ignite youth, young adults, and university students to passionately pursue Christ and transform the world they find themselves in. Now, we're going to take a break from this series that we've been in the last few weeks, mostly because Jordan has had me on call for three weekends, and we figured, you know what, planning-wise, it would just be easier if you did your own thing, and I didn't have to prepare three different messages, depending on what Sunday Baby Schultz decided to arrive. So, we're taking a break. Jordan will be back next weekend to continue the series, but let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into this message. So, Father, we just come before you, and thank you for who you are and what you are doing in our lives. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear what you want to say, but even more so that you would give us the courage to live out what we learned today. In your name we pray. Amen? So at the start of every year, rather than come up with a list of resolutions and goals that I'm not going to keep, hence why I do not have six-pack abs, what I do is come up with a word for the year. And this is a word that I believe embodies what God wants to do in my life. It's a word I pray about, a word I seek scripture about, a word I orient my entire life around for that year. Now, last year, in 2018, that word was the word go. And last year was a pretty good year for me. God opened a lot of doors. He he gave me a lot of new opportunities, a lot of new experiences. It was a year of my life just kind of in this forward motion. And so when it came time to pray about what is my word for 2019, I was excited. Because I was like, it's going to be a continuation of this forward motion. God's going to continue to give me new opportunities, new ideas, new experiences. I'm so excited for this. But as I sat down and spent some time praying about this back in December, there was a single word that he kept bringing to me. In fact, it's something that he'd been speaking to me all the way back in October of last year during my annual trip to the Czech Republic. And it was the word rest. Now, I know for a lot of you in here, if God showed up and said, 2019 is a year of rest, you'd be super excited. You'd be like jumping up and down in the aisles, dancing a little bit, because who doesn't want a year of rest? Anyone want God to say, hey, this year's a year of rest for you? Awesome. Well, I was a little excited for this. I mean, I had images of stepping out of all my volunteer responsibilities, putting my side business on hold, and really just going to work in the morning, coming home, sitting on the couch, watching Netflix, eating popcorn and ice cream, because those are my guilty pleasures, and doing nothing. So these images are running through my head, and I was like, yes, this is going to be a good year. But there was a much larger part of me that was very anxious. Because you see, rest does not come naturally to me. I am a doer. In fact, in every personality test, every strengths test, leadership test, talents test, those little quizzes you could take on Facebook to determine which superhero you are, Captain America or Superman every single time, thank you very much. What I've learned about myself is that my brain is wired in two main ways. I am a visionary, which means I am energized by looking in the future and imagining how things could be. And I am a doer. I am energized by getting stuff done. 
I'm the guy that can wake up early in the morning, go to work all day, come home, work on a night, work on a side business, work on a side project till 10, 11 o'clock at night, go to bed, wake up early the next morning, and do it all over again. I am the roll up your sleeves and get stuff done kind of guy. So when God said 2019 is a year of rest for you, I had no idea what that meant. No idea what that would look like. And so this morning, but as I've been as I've been studying this word in scripture, what I've realized is that God's idea of rest and our idea of rest are radically different. And so this morning, we are going to look at a story in scripture of when God told his people to rest and see what it means for us today. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 14. Now, if you don't have your Bibles, the verses will be on the screen to the side of me, or you can download the FCC Mammoth mobile app, click the Sunday button, and you will have all the verses and all the notes from this sermon in there for you. Now, we are going to actually walk through the story that is found in Exodus 14, but for time's sake this morning, I'm only going to read verses 10 through 14. And it says this, As Pharaoh approached, The Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're kind of little whiny babies. Um, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Now, I'm sure most of you know this story. The children of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And they were crying out to God for freedom. So God raised up a deliverer in the way of Moses who stood before Pharaoh and told him to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh refused, so God sent ten plagues on the Egyptians. At the end of the tenth plague, Pharaoh calls Moses before me. He says, listen, you, your wives, your children, your livestock, your possessions, all of you get out. We don't want you here anymore. So the Israelites plunder the Egyptians, and as they are leaving Egypt, Scripture tells us that they were led by a pillar of cloud at the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. Now, I want to show you the path that the Israelites took, that God led them as they left Egypt. If you bring that map up, awesome. So when the Israelites lived in Egypt, they were in a town called Goshen, which you can see really big right over here. This is where their homes were. This is where their livestock was. This is where, like, their grocery stores and their barbers and all that kind of stuff was. This was home. And if you can see this orange line that goes from Goshen and kind of comes up this way, this was considered the made part of the major caravan route between the east and the west. So if you were traveling, let's say from Egypt to, I don't know, let's just say Canaan, which is where the Israelites eventually went, this is the route that you would take. It was kind of comparable to our modern-day highway system. There would have been cities built along this road. There would have been rest areas. There would have been places to buy supplies. There would have been a lot of traffic in this way. So if your horse broke down, your carriage broke down, you could find help because there would have been enough people walking by. This was the fastest way to go. This was the safest way to go. If you had half a brain in your head, this is the route you took from Egypt to Canaan. Can you guess that this probably is not the way that God led the Israelites He didn't take them this route. In fact, if you can see these green arrows coming down here, this is the route God led the Israelites. 
he actually took them deeper into Egypt, into what was considered the wilderness of Egypt. And he brought them to this point right here on the edge of the Red Sea. And scripture tells us, if you were to read all of Exodus 14, that it was directly across from the city of Baal Safan. Now, anytime you see a specific name like this in scripture, there is significance to it. And we don't always understand the significance because we don't have the cultural context behind it. But this whole part of the world participated in what was called Baal worship. And Baal was a system of false gods that people would worship and bow down to and offer sacrifices to. And this part of the world on the eastern side of the Red Sea is where they worship the god Saphon. And Saphon was considered the lord of the sea. So this is where his temple would have been. This is where you pilgrimage to offer sacrifices and worship this god. And so when God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, he brings them right to that point directly across from the temple of Saphon. Now you need to understand when you read stories like this in Scripture, there's always more than one level of what's going on. There is a deeper level. It's why you can read the same verse multiple times and get something different out of it, is because there's multiple levels of depth to each story. In fact, in this story, kind of the surface level is that God is bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. But there is another story running parallel to it in Scripture. You see, if you really study it, what you'll find is that while God was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, he was also in the process of dismantling and destroying every false god in that area. And the reason I can say this is if you actually study the ten plagues that God inflicted upon the Egyptians, what you'll find is each plague was a direct attack against one of the Egyptian gods. And he was trying to show them that their gods were false. These things that they were believing and these things that they put their hope in, that they sacrificed to, were false gods, that they weren't real, that they had no power, they had no might over them, that this God of the Israelites was the one true God, that he was the only God who actually had power. He was trying to dismantle all these gods that they served in this region of the world. And when he brought them out of Egypt, there was one other God that needed to be destroyed, and that was the God Saphan. So he brings the children of Israel down to the edge of the Red Sea, directly across from his temple. Now, Zaphon was not an Egyptian god, but he was a god that the Egyptians would have reverenced and a god the Egyptians would have worshipped, because he was the lord of the sea. And so if they wanted to travel the Red Sea, if they wanted to fish the Red Sea, best practice was, I better go offer a sacrifice to this God so he doesn't get mad at me and like cause my boat to flip over or make it that I can't catch any fish. So they would have worshipped and honored this God. And so as the God of the Israelites brings them out of Egypt, he sets them up to destroy one more God. And Exodus 14 says, while they were in camp there, Pharaoh kind of came to his senses and realized, I just let 600,000 free laborers out of my country. Like, bye-bye economy. Trump's not going to help me with this one. This is, this is done. Like, 600,000 free laborers, your economy is trash. And so scripture says he uh, gathered up 600 of his best chariots and all the rest of his chariots, his officers, his horsemen, his soldiers, his footmen, all his army, and he headed out after the Israelites. And as they get close, the Israelites see this army coming and they freak out. 
Now, we tend to give the Israelites a little bit of flack because of their lack of faith, but I'm going to be honest, if I was in their shoes, I would be freaking out too. The world's most powerful army at that time was coming to kill them. This would be the modern-day equivalent of the entire U.S. Army surrounding Mammoth coming to kill you. I don't care how good you are at hide-and-seek. I don't care how good you are with a gun. I don't care if you're some kind of secret spy ninja that can do flips or whatever. You are not surviving that. The army is going to destroy you. This is the situation the Israelites were in. And so they freak out. And they turn to Moses and they're like, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? Did you want us to have a more picturesque death? Was like dying along the banks of the Red Sea more pretty death than dying in Goshen? Like we told you to leave us alone. We told you to leave us in Egypt. We didn't want to come. And now we're just going to die. And this is when Moses stands up and says what we read earlier. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. This phrase, be still, is translated in other parts of the Old Testament as the word rest. And it is a Hebrew word that means to be quiet, to be silent, to hold one's tongue, to cease, to stop striving, to relax, and to rest. So in essence, the world's most powerful army is coming to kill the Israelites. Moses stands up and he says, y'all, Chill out. Relax. It's going to be okay. I don't know about you. If I was there, I would have walked up to Moses and punched him in the face. Like, it is not okay. We're going to die. Like, what? Stop being some crazy hippie and thinking, oh, it's all going to be okay. We are going to die here, Moses. What are you doing? But you see, Moses understood that the words that we speak have power. And he knew that if the Israelites kept speaking fear, doubt, and death over their situation, that they were not going to see God stand up and move on their behalf. In fact, in Proverbs 18, 21, it says that the tongue has the power of life and death. The words that you speak have power. It's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. If you speak it enough, it happens because your words have power. And Moses knew this. And he knew if he had 600,000 people saying things like, we're going to die, there's no way out of this, the Egyptians are going to kill us, this is where we're going to be buried, that it would erode their faith and they would not believe that their God was powerful enough to come and rescue them. So he basically stands up and says to them, what we often need to hear when we get into difficulty, shut up. It's very biblical. He probably said it a little bit nicer than me. That is the Jason paraphrase. I work with college students, so I have to use language like that. Sorry. I don't know about you, but when life gets difficult, my knee-jerk reaction is to respond in fear, doubt, and death. In fact, I think this is something that is pretty common to most people, that when life gets difficult, Our response is, how am I going to get through this? This is horrible. Nothing's ever going to change. That is kind of that. We don't even think about it. That's just what comes out. And so we get the notice that we lost our job, and the first thing we say is, how am I going to pay the bills? We're going to lose the house. We're not going to be able to feed the kids. How are we going to get through this? Or we get a bad report from the doctor, and we think, well, this is just how my life's going to be. I'm going to have to live with this. There's no healing from this. There's no way that I'm going to be made better. Or the relationship starts to, to break apart, and we think, well, look, love doesn't last. I've learned this through TV, and I've learned this through the culture, that, that it's just so far broken. There's no way, there's nothing that could bring this relationship back together. Our knee-jerk reaction is fear, doubt, and death. And Moses stood up to the Israelites, and he said, listen, 
If you want to rest in God, if you want to trust that he is going to move on your behalf, if you want to have this sense that even when the army comes against you, that your God is big enough to defeat that, you need to stop speaking fear, doubt, and death over your situation. In fact, I tell my students this all the time. If you cannot speak faith over your situation, then don't speak at all. It is better not to say anything than to keep speaking fear, doubt, and death over your situation. But this wasn't the only aspect of resting in God. You see, that definition also meant to cease and to stop striving. Now, Scripture doesn't say this, but I think it's safe to assume that if you have 600,000 people together and an army is coming after them to kill them, there's at least a handful of the type A personalities that have to figure everything out and try to find a way to survive that. Like, I'm sure that there were some of them that were coming up with plans on how to get out of this. Like, every time I read stories like this in Scripture, I put myself in the shoes of the characters. Because these were real people with real emotions who lived at a real time. And I have to assume that of 600,000 people, there was at least one person like me who's going to try to figure everything out and solve the solve the situation. So I'm sure some of them like stood on the banks of the Red Sea was like, all right, we can swim it. Put your speedos on, let's go. Sure, we might not know how to swim, but I'd rather drown than have Pharaoh kill me. Or some of them were probably like, well, maybe we can find some places to hide. Like, you're not going to hide 600,000 people, but if a few hundred could hide, then when Pharaoh comes and slaughters everyone, your people group does not cease to exist. Or scripture tells us that when they left Egypt, they actually plundered the Egyptians and took some weapons. So I'm sure some of them were like, you know what? Let's fight. Like, there's no way we're going to defeat the Egyptian army, but I would rather die fighting than go back into slavery. Or, and this is probably more what I would do, so here's my brokenness and my ugliness. I'm sure some of them looked at it and said, you know what? Pharaoh's really only mad at Moses. So what if we negotiate and say, hey, how about you take Moses and you can have Aaron and you can do whatever you want with them. That's fine. We'll come back. We'll be good little slaves. We won't try to escape again. Like, let us live and you can do whatever you want to them. We told them we didn't want to go. It's all their fault. Take them. I'm super holy, guys. Um, (laughs) They were trying to figure it out. Any of you ever done that? You get to a difficult situation in life, and so you try one thing, and that doesn't seem to work, so you try another, and that doesn't work. So then you get on Facebook, and you post about it because you're hoping that some of your friends who are closer to God and maybe pray a little bit more would pray for you because since they're closer to God, God would listen to them more than he listens to you, so maybe their prayers will help you, and that doesn't seem to work. So then you call up a friend, and you're like, I just need to vent, which is really holy speak for saying I need to complain and gossip about my situation. Ooh, stepping on some toes right now. Um, And and that doesn't seem to work. So then you're like, well, I'm going to listen to a podcast, or I'm going to listen to a sermon or I'm going to try to get advice from someone and none of that seems to work and nothing seems to be fitting together and you're like why is God not moving why aren't things fitting together am I the only one who's ever done that especially the Facebook thing some of you I stepped on your toes on that one and good Um, (laughs) see The Israelites were doing this too. And Moses stood up to them and he said, listen, you just need to knock it off. You do not have the strength, you do not have the power, and you certainly do not have the wisdom to figure this one out. We are not getting out of this one on our own. The only way we survive this is if God shows up and shows off. 
We cannot outthink it. We cannot not outmaneuver the Egyptian army. We are done if God does not show up. And so he says, basically, if you want to rest in God, you need to cease striving and trying to figure it out in your own power, your own strength, and your own wisdom. This is what it means to rest in God. But there's a third aspect to resting in him. And that is understanding that God has a bigger plan in store. You see, if we would have started reading the story from the start of Exodus 14, what you would find is that as God was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, he kind of pulled Moses aside and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to pursue you. Do you understand that he orchestrated this entire thing? God is the one who led them to this point so their back was against the sea and they had no place to go. God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would grab his army and come after them. God orchestrated this entire situation. They would not have been against that Red Sea. They would not have had an army coming after them if God had not moved the situation and caused it to happen. But what he continues to tell Moses is that I'm doing it so all people will see my glory. So that the Egyptians would see my glory. So that the people living in this region would see my glory. And so that you would see my glory. He had a greater plan. And when you trust in God, when you rest in him, it is ceasing from speaking fear, doubt, and death over your situation. It is stopping from trying to strive and figure it out on your own. And it is trusting that God has a bigger plan in store. You see, eventually the Egyptians arrived. And I'm sure at this point, Pharaoh was pretty excited because he saw the Israelites pinned against the Red Sea and he knew if they tried to cross the sea, the god Saphon would kill them. And if they didn't try to cross the sea, his army would kill them. Either way, Pharaoh's going to walk out the victor in this situation. So he's pumped. But scripture tells us that this pillar of cloud that was leading them in the front moved to behind them. And kind of created almost like a wall between the Egyptians and the Israelites that separated them all night long. So when the Egyptians looked at it, they saw darkness. And when the Israelites looked at it, they saw light. And as the Israelites are crying out to God, he looks at them and he's like, what are you doing here? Get moving. And this is when Moses raises his staff and the waters part and they begin walking across on dry ground. And when they're about partway through, this pillar of cloud moves from behind them back to in front of them. And Pharaoh sees what is going on. And I'm sure at this point he's still kind of excited because, again, in his mind, it is the god Saphon who's doing all this. So he's like, ha-ha, Saphon is doing something sneaky here. He's giving them hope. He's giving them this sense of like, yes, we're going to be free, and then he's going to destroy them. This is awesome. So he sends his army in after them. And as they reach the other side of the Red Sea, it says that God looked down from this pillar of cloud, and he began to... Uh, ruined the plans of the Egyptians. He, like, caused their, their chariot wheels to seize. He spooked their horses so they crashed into each other. And they began to realize, like, hey, wait a minute. This God of the Israelites, he's, like, actively fighting against us. And Saphon is doing nothing. Like, he's not helping us at all. So they turn around and start heading out. And that's when God releases the waters and totally destroys the entire Egyptian army you realize it took only a matter of seconds for God to destroy the army that was coming after the Israelites. 
And this is something that this entire region of the world would have heard about. The God of the Israelites destroyed the most powerful army on the planet like that. In fact, so much so that if you continue reading Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even up into Joshua, what you'll find is as God continued to lead them up to the promised land, the fear and dread of the Israelites fell on every single people group they came against. Because they all heard what the God of the Israelites had done. How he had destroyed every Egyptian God. How he had destroyed the Egyptian army. And they knew if the armies of the Egyptians couldn't stop this God, if the gods of the Egyptians couldn't stop this God, there was nothing that was going to stop this God. They knew that the God of the Israelites was the most powerful God there was. And no one wanted to mess with him. He wanted all people to see his glory. And so God set this entire thing up, not just to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. That was part of the plan. But he set it up so this entire region of the world would know the power of the God of the Israelites. That there is nothing on this planet that could stop him. In fact, he showed the Egyptians and the people in this region that there was no God, there was no army, there was no force in this world that could stand against the God of the Israelites. And he showed the Israelites that there was nothing that could come against them. There was no army, there was no difficulty that could raise its ugly head against them and still stand. That he was more powerful than anything that would come against them. This was his plan. This was what he wanted to show them. Now, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know in your life where you feel like your back is against a sea and an army is coming against you. But I want you to understand that resting in God means that you stop speaking fear, doubt, and death over your situation. Stop complaining. Stop saying nothing's ever going to get better. I don't know how this is going to work out. Just stop. Shut up. It means that you stop striving in your own power, your own strength, and your own wisdom. Because I don't care how smart you are, you are not smarter than God. And there are some things that you are going to encounter in life that only he can get you through. And that you trust that he has a bigger plan in store. His plan was for all people to see his glory. And that's what he'll do in you. When you're going through a difficult season, when it feels like that army is pressing against you, his plan is not only that you would see his glory, but that everything around you would see his glory. This is what Exodus 14 is all about. This is what it means to rest in God. It's a little different than sitting on the couch watching Netflix eating popcorn and ice cream. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it is about trusting that God knows what he's doing. And whatever you're going through this morning, I want you to understand, if you get nothing else from this sermon, if you fell asleep through the majority of this, and normally I tell people every time I speak, if you fall asleep while I'm speaking, I will take a shoe off and throw it at you because that's what I do to the college students. Um, I didn't give you that warning, so I kept my shoes on this morning, so sorry about that. Um, if you get nothing else from this message this morning, what I want you to get is this. No matter what you go through, no matter what comes against you, our God is bigger. And he knows what he's doing. You're not going to feel it. It's not going to seem like it. You're not going to see the way out. But he's already done it. In fact, he would not have let the Israelites come to this point. He would not have let the Egyptian army surround them if he didn't already know how he was going to free them. 
You need to understand that because when you start going through difficulties, when life starts pressing against you, what you need to know is that God already knows down to the millisecond how he's going to get you out. In fact, if you want the $5 version of this sermon, like I'm giving this to you for free, but the $5 version is he's already done it. It just hasn't manifested for you yet, which that's a whole nother, that's much bigger, okay? He knows how he's going to figure it out. Before they even got to that point on the Red Sea, he already knew that he was going to part the sea and they were going to walk across on dry ground and that the Egyptian army was going to be, be killed. He already knew it. He would not have sent them into that situation if it was like, oops, sorry guys, I miscalculated that. I'm not more powerful than the Egyptian army. They're going to slaughter you. My bad. Like, that's not who he is. But for a lot of us, that's how we think he is. Because that's how we respond when we go through difficulty. God's not big enough for this. God doesn't have a plan for this, so I got to figure it all out. Boy, you do not, you are not smarter than God, all right? He knows what he's doing. In fact, it wasn't until their back was against this sea and the army was in front of them. It wasn't until they had no other plans, that there was nothing else that could help them that they actually saw the miracle. See, God's not going to free you from what you're going through when you're still trying to figure it out on your own. He waits until you've exhausted every avenue, and then he's like, okay, now that you're done, now that you think that you know what's best, and you've finally given up on that, now I'm going to show up, and I'm going to fix this. He did what the Israelites could never have done. In fact, in their minds, I want you to understand how crazy this is. In their minds, they did not even think the possibility of waters parting and walking across on dry ground. Do you understand this is the level of the God that we serve? That there are solutions to the situations that you're going through that your brain cannot even comprehend yet because it hasn't happened. This is the God that we serve. And when you rest in him, it means that this army can press against you and you still have your eyes up like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if the Egyptians are coming after me because I have a God who is more powerful than the Egyptians and I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know how this is going to work out. And let's be honest, that's scary, guys. When you're in a tough situation and you don't know what God's going to do and you don't know when God's going to do it, that is scary. Can we just be honest this morning? Even when we trust God, that is still scary. But... He knows what he's doing, and he never fails. Trusting in God, resting in him, means you recognize that. And that when the army is coming against you, you have your eyes up, and you're like, doesn't matter. My God is bigger. And I may not see it. I may not feel it. But he is going to do something that I can't even comprehend yet. And he is going to work this out for good. This is who our God is. And when you rest in him, you stop complaining and speaking fear, doubt, and death. You stop trying to figure it out on your own because, let's be honest, you're not smart enough, all right? None of us are. And you trust that he has a bigger plan in store. You see, this wasn't just about the Israelites. Yes, he brought them out of Egypt. But this was about showing an entire region of the world his glory. So while the Israelites benefited from it, there was something bigger going on. And the same is true for whatever you're going through, there is something bigger God is trying to work in you and through you if you allow him to. 
So I want to end with this. Romans 8, 28. Paul writes this. For God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called to his purposes. All things. Good things and bad things. Easy things, difficult things. Seasons of blessing and abundance and seasons of dissolution. He works all things together for your good and for his glory. Everything you go through, every hardship, every struggle, every time the army is coming against you, he works it all out for your good and for his glory. That he knows what he's doing. And when you rest in God, you can stand in the middle of that army surrounding you and you can still have hope, you can still have peace, you can still have the, re the reassurance that our God knows what he's doing and he is going to work it all out. Amen? Well, I want to end this way this morning. It's a little different. If you guys would close your eyes, I promise I'm not going to come around and steal your stuff. God has blessed me enough. I don't need your stuff. Go ahead and close your eyes. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you in a season of life right now where it feels like there is an army coming against you? Are you at a place where it feels like your back is against the sea and everything is pressing against and you just don't know what's happening? Does it feel like God is being silent? Does it feel like he's not listening? Does it feel like nothing is ever going to work out? If, if that is you this morning, if you are in that season, what I want you to do is keep your eyes closed because this is between you and God. But I want you to stand up. If you're in that season, I want you to stand because we're going to spend some time and we're going to pray for you if you're in that kind of season where you don't know what's going on, you don't know how God's going to react, you don't know how he's going to, to move on your behalf. So Father, this morning, I want to pray for every single person who is in this season where it feels like the army is pressing against them. And God, I want to pray for everyone else who isn't in that season yet, but guess what? Will be in that season at some point in their lives. God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who rest in you, who know who you are, that you are bigger than anything that we could face. And I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you so that no matter what comes against us, we know that you are bigger and you are more powerful. Amen? Amen.